from Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 125 versus Designer Showdown, Uwe Rosenberg versus Stefan Feld. We'd like to thank the great land of Germany for bringing such outstanding gamers to our world and such amazing games to our table. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Hey, Anthony. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Nice, quiet holiday week here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually at Dexcon 2017 in Morristown, New Jersey, joining our friends out there for some amazing games at the table. Big, big fans of Double Exposure and all the cons they do. And once again, they're doing an outstanding job. So when this episode drops on Sunday, if you're actually at Dexcon 2017, seek me out and we can get some games to the table. So Anthony, you've actually been to some of the Double Exposures events in the past, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been to a few. Um, I can never remember what they're called other than Dexcon. They all have funny names, but <laughs> I've been to at least three. Uh-huh. And yeah, and it's a lot of fun. It's just, it's very low key. We get to do a lot of gaming, not as much running around or craziness, especially in the middle of summer. It must be nice because you got Origins and then nice low key Dexcon and then the the behemoth that is the sold out Gen Con <laughs> coming True. up. Oof. I know there's been a lot of craziness these days. Not, not. The least of which is the, I guess, recent purchasing craze and backlash craze and backlash to the backlash craze about Monopoly. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a lot of that stuff online. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're online, you've seen it, and it's really funny. Except for the people who are involved who do not find this funny (laughs) at all. Yeah, Hasbro released a new Monopoly. It's called Monopoly Gamer. It has player powers and a limited timer. It's the same game. It's just removes like two of the biggest problems from the game so some gamers are like cool and everybody else is like it's still monopoly anathema Ah!" (laughs) and then another piece of craziness would be that terraforming mars has moved up on the board game oh my god to number seven and scythe has dropped to number eight and then people are crazy losing their mind and posting their reviews and showing that they've been rating Scythe a 1 because they want Terraforming Mars to jump up on the scale a little bit and then there's been a backlash about that and then of course our friend Jamie Stegmeyer being the ultimate good guy that he is is like congratulations to Terraforming Mars it's an amazing game I'm like that's Jamie for you what a good guy yeah <laughs> oh my gosh I the, the hotness list is hilarious to me um, or the, the top 100 just because people get so invested in it and it is clearly just become in the last couple of years a popularity contest for the games that have been released in the last five years sure it's like you look at the top 10 now and like four or five of those games came out in the last 18 months yes that's not a useful tool anymore no. i mean so why get so upset yeah especially with people purchasing games on kickstarter rating them in advance and then being able to rate solid quality games of one in order to get your yeah. other games up it's really sad i mean it should almost be like if you've played the game but you don't own a copy then you get to rate it but otherwise yeah. <laughs> if you own it you got a somewhat of invested stake into that whole kind of system but yeah a lot of craziness going on on the board so hopefully those things will somewhat come down and get a little clear but we have our 
own craziness. So, Anthony, what's our uh, question of the week going on? All right. So today's episode is our first versus two designers that are near and dear to our hearts as gamers, uh, Uwe Rosenberg and Stefan Feld. So we figured what better way to uh, mark our question of the week this week than to ask people what they think. And we'll tell you what we think later. But right now we wanted to share kind of the thoughts from listeners out there. Um, and so we asked, if you could only have the games of one of these designers, which would it be? Uwe Rosenberg or Stefan Feld? And I honestly did not expect a ton of responses because it's a very specific question. And the last time I asked a very specific question, people thought it was funny just to answer random other things. Like, <laughs> neither of them. Leacock. Eric <laughs> Lang. Like, okay, okay, we get it. <laughs> Actually, the Leacock was Jason. So, Jason. That's <laughs> not what I asked. Um, but yeah, no, we got a lot of great responses. So, uh, Rosenberg did get more responses by a decently fair margin, like maybe a 10 to five, 12 to five, somewhere in there. And the one thing people pointed out for, uh, for Rosenberg is, uh, diversity. So like I expected people to be like, I love Agricola, woo. But a handful of people definitely pointed out like, you know, he's got patchwork all the way up to Caverna, which is a fair point. Like, um, I don't think of his catalog as diverse, but there's definitely a big gap in terms of weight. A couple of other people, though, pointed out specific games for Feld. James mentioned that Feld is an easy call because the only Rosenberg game he's liked is Patchwork. So that you know would be an easy call for me as well. Let's see here. Scott says he just got his copy of his Grail game, Bruges. So he's picking Feld there because that's the, the game he's been looking for the longest. We actually got a couple of people posted some videos of reviews in costume for each of these games, <laughs> wow. um, which was quite humorous. Uh, Feast for Odin versus Jorvik, of course, because it has to be Viking theme. And then let's see here on Twitter. Uh, we had Major Havoc said Feld because of the cube tower in Amerigo. Nice. Good a reason as any. Sure. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, we, we obviously have our opinions as well, which we'll get to towards the end of the episode. But thank you to everybody who chimed in there. Um, Uwe got a lot of love, but definitely some Feldites out there as well. Nice. Uh, and if you'd like to join the conversation, as Anthony's saying, our Facebook account is up and extremely active. So the question of the week always goes there. It also goes to Twitter, where you can kind of pop in there, drop your responses, see what everyone else is saying. Don't forget, we have BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our website. There's always new content going up there, written reviews, videos, access to the podcast, a whole bunch of great stuff, a number of different lists, everything you could possibly want. And if you'd like to help us out, we're always looking for ratings on iTunes and Stitcher. Dropping five stars and dropping some comments will do great for us to get our hobby out there to more people. Plus our Patreon account. A little bit for us can help us keep bringing you some outstanding podcasts in the future. We also have our Amazon affiliate link for whatever you're looking to buy or going to purchase. Why not jump onto our link? We get a little kickback and it doesn't cost you anything more. And don't forget... There is also our BGG, our guild on Board Game Geek, where you can check us out, link to us, and connect with us there. Want to see what our ratings are like? Want to see what games we own? You can check everything out over there. With that being said, now on to our acquisition disorders. So, Anthony, what have you been playing this last week? Monopoly Gamer. Didn't we already talk about this? Haha, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I trolled you guys. Oh, burn, burn. <laughs> 
<laughs> is that Anthony uh, at BoardGamersAnonymous.com if they want to send all that hate mail? Yeah, go for it, guys. <laughs> Bring it. It's at the top of the hotness. I'm I'm with the crowds here. Ah. Oh, man. Honestly, the thing I'm doing this week is I'm watching the UPS ticker go by as First Martians gets closer over the waters. But I've also been digging through the Gen Con lists of all the games coming up um, soon. So we'll probably be talking about a lot more of those as that list fleshes out here in the next four or five weeks. But one game that popped out at me that I hadn't really heard or seen anything about recently um, is Dragon Island. This is a new game from Mike Fitzgerald. Uh, it's being published by R&R Games. And it looks to be a medium, lightish weight game. It says it takes about an hour. I'm uh, looking at the pictures. It looks fairly mid-weight. And the the whole theme of the game is, as you'd imagine, you are wizards on a deserted island, and there are dragons. You're trying to tame those dragons, build structures, discover new terrain, you know, all cool high fantasy stuff. I don't know. <laughs> um, it is tile placement. There's a modular board. The, the components look pretty fantastic. Um, it is just a mock-up at this point, so they don't have any final stuff up there yet. But uh, it you have this modular board of all these different vistas and characters and your own wizards going out there and then these cards that you'll be playing as well as um, a whole bunch of information hidden behind your little um, your card that you're going to be putting up. So it looks like a fairly accessible entryweight game. It's Mike Fitzgerald. Um, he does fantastic work with card games. So I, I have to imagine this will be you know on par with you know some of his other games. Um, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. I think it'll be one of those fun, quick, uh, entry-level, mid-level, um, affordable games that R&R often does. And uh, hopefully it's a good one. Nice. All right. Well, the a game that I'm really looking forward to is both an acquisition disorder and a kind of partial review. So I'm talking about Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Now, why this is a partial review and also an acquisition disorder is because what's really interesting and unique about Vast is while it is a somewhat typical dungeon crawl type of game, don't leave yet, there is a heavy Euro component to this, it is uniquely asymmetrical in a way that I have yet to see, I don't think I've ever seen, Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong on this, in any game where the characters in the game play not only radically different from each other but they all have radically different win conditions and yeah this is this yeah. is definitely a first i've never seen anything like this either and so when i'm when i'm going to say this to you like there's a fighter there's goblins there's a dragon in the game there's thief so you're like oh, okay yeah I, I get that that's not too crazy what are you talking about well you can also play the cave <laughs> so <laughs> the place in which they're doing all of this questing and fighting and slumbering you can actually play the cave c-a-v-e and that's pretty amazing that alone really deserves a playthrough so in this game vast you are going to play one of the unique different characters in the game and you're going to have a unique setup you're going to have unique tokens and pieces and the game is going to play very different so i got to play this actually today at Dexcon 2017, plug, and I got to play these goblins, and the goblins were really interesting because you're not playing as a goblin, but you're playing as three different tribes of goblins that each have a different unique effect, and what you're trying to do if you do have the full complement of players in this game is you're trying to kill the fighter because 
the goblins are hanging out, the cavern's their home, this fighter's coming in, he's going to mess with our home, we're going to mess with her. So basically what you're doing is you're trying to up your population and up your attack, kind of like how evolution does that. So you're adding to the, your, you know, your power by adding to your population, you're trying to jump the fighter in order to kill her, and you're just doing attack after attack after attack. You get to add monsters to your little tribe of different goblins, which is really fun and interesting. And, and each of these monsters does something very different. So, for example, there is the normal monsters that kind of give you a buff. And there's some other monsters that have special effects. So you can get the slime monster or you can get the wisp. And the wisp, you know, moves the other fighter to a place where you can attack them. So, really interesting. Uh, I enjoyed playing the goblins. And I enjoyed watching everybody else play their different roles a little bit. Uh, as far as the reviews concerned, I want to keep coming back to this as I play the different roles so that you have a full feel of the game because you're really playing five different games. Now, if you don't play with the full complement, what you'll be able to do is the game is really smart about adjusting the victory condition. I like that. As far as the goblins are going, it's a strong play. I really like playing the goblins. That was a really interesting mechanic where you can kind of add to your tribes and the tribes have different special abilities the actual attacking of the fighter was a little bland because that's all you're really doing is waiting for the fighter to come along and attacking her or ambushing her but otherwise it's so it's so 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 that gets a play if i get a chance to play the cave or if i get a chance to play dragon or if something else is a little more dynamic it might move up to a buy this game is incredibly tough to teach i really compliment our teacher for going through all these different roles very quickly i think that's going to be somewhat of a barrier to entry for most people Dropping this down in a game night, you actually have to teach five different games. Not very complex, but nonetheless challenging. The player guides are really well done and intuitive, so I'm really happy about that. But it is a daunting situation, and I think it's a challenge here. So now on to the little acquisition part of it. There's an expansion upcoming. So they're going to have some additional characters to play in the game. So, for example, you can play as the Nightmarish Unicorn because that's something you wanted to do. And the Nightmarish Unicorn jumps around and basically attacks people and does a lot of teleporting and hopes that the cave will kind of drop down and kill everybody else. There's the ghoul that just gets stronger turn after turn as it attacks people. It used to be a once grand fighter. Now it's kind of like a golem type of creature. And there is also a ghost in the game. And the ghost is like the lost soul of a fighter that didn't make it out of the cave. And the ghost is trying to collect the last you know remnants of her humanity so that she can come back and finally rest in peace the artwork is really interesting and i really enjoy it because it's got a really different take it's cartoony but it really has a unique style so kyle fern has done a great job here it's a good game i if you do see us at the table thank the teacher sit down and play it i think you'll enjoy it i'm not sure if it's a buy just because i'm not sure if you can get to the table but i will come back with a full review once i'm able to play all the characters yeah, this one's been sitting on my shelf for a while for this exact reason. I would be the teacher, and I have yet to fully wrap my brain around all the different roles, uh, and that's tough. So I, I can't imagine buying it and then learning it and teaching all five all in one go, which is what I did, and I just have not done that yet. Definitely. This is a game that it's going to be a love situation or a unique group of people situation and then this guy this game's going to fit perfectly it's going to be a niche inside of a niche but otherwise it might be a dodge because it just might be a situation where it's un unteachable in a normal kind of game night situation 
All right, so that's our acquisition disorders. Now to our at the tables with BGA. Anthony, what have you got to the table this week? Okay, so this is a game uh, I picked up a little while back and uh, actually got a chance to play it, I guess, last week. And that's Yamatai. This is the newest game from Days of Wonder uh, and Bruno Cathala, along with Mark Pekian. And it is a beautiful production, of course. It's Days of Wonder. It's this fantastical world um, based on historical Japan. And what you're doing is you are creating these trade routes and building buildings on various islands, uh, along with different tori and palaces. And you're trying to score points based on the placement of these things. Um, like five tribes, this is actually kind of impressive, like that Cathal has been able to do this again, is the rules are only about three and a half pages. They're very, very simple. You read through them, it makes perfect sense. But the game is a decent midweight game. There's a decent amount of heft here and a lot of interesting decisions to be made, despite the fact that the rule book is very, very short. And that's something I always really liked about Days of Wonder games. Very accessible, quick to learn, quick to teach, but a decent amount of depth there um, under the surface. So what you do on each turn is you take... Um, you're going to pick an action from five available actions. There are 10 total, and they'll kind of shuffle through based on who takes what. Um, the five that are in the wings uh, usually stay face down, and you'll be able to take them as they kind of cycle through. And each of these actions will give you a certain number of boats, and the boats come in five different colors, uh, as, long, as well as an additional action. These actions also determine turn order. So the uh, the lower the number, the earlier in turn order you're going to get to go, but the less cool the action is. So like the 10 is amazing. You get three boats, including a gold boat, which is really hard to get. The one gives you a single green boat, which is not very good at all. But you get to go first on the next round. There's not a set number of turns in the game. It just goes until one of the several different end conditions happens, um, which all have to do with running out of certain components. But basically what you're going to be doing is on your turn, you will place out all the boats you just got from bidding, uh, you can also purchase a boat every turn, and you just add them to the existing routes. You don't have your own routes. These are all communal routes. The boats belong to everybody. And what you're trying to do is surround islands with different colored boats to match different building tiles. So each building tile will have, like, you need red, red, green, brown. So you would need to have those four colored boats around that island, and the culture token would also need to be removed from that island. And then once you've done that and you place a boat down there, you can build a building from the display. And so you go around and around and around and take turns um, building up your boats, building different buildings, expanding your routes. There are special buildings that are worth more points but also allow you to score points during placement. There are certain ways to get money during placement. Uh, there are – when you take those culture tokens, you can then turn them in for special abilities – uh, that are some of them are persistent, some of them are single use per round, some of them are end game scoring. So you get that kind of additional, similar to the gins in uh, Five Tribes element to the game. And it's all very cohesive and interesting. And a lot of people compare it to Five Tribes, and it's not really like Five Tribes in that it's it's not Moncalo. You're building roots, and those roots just happen to be shared, you know, in a similar way. So it looks similar at first glance, but it's a very different type of game. Uh, the, I really, really enjoyed the accessible nature of the game. It's quick to teach. I taught the game in five or 10 minutes and we played through it in about an hour and it, everybody felt comfortable and understood and we were able to get through it very smoothly. The game can get a little, it feels like it ends quickly 
because there are so many different end conditions. If you run out of buildings or those special abilities or one of the colors of boats, which tends to be the way the game ends because people will just stockpile on one end kind of boat or they'll try to end the game early if they think they're in the lead and just buy that kind of boat until it runs out. So that part of it has yet to feel organic. Uh, it doesn't really flow the same way. Whereas in like five tribes, you know the game's about to end because people are putting out their camels and you know how many camels are out and you know when the game's going to end up. So the the natural flow of the game tends to be feel a little abrupt towards the end. Um, you can definitely block each other here as well. You can steal the work somebody else has done on their roots, which can be a little frustrating. Once those culture tokens are gone, especially if somebody went through and took a whole bunch of them, uh, it can be a little frustrating to try to get anything done in certain areas. But overall, I, I found it quite enjoyable. Uh, none of those things is particularly frustrating, and the nature of the game is not quite as AP-inducing as like Five Tribes is. So when it's when I say an hour, it is probably going to take an hour versus the two hours that Five Tribes would take, even though it says an hour. So I give this one a pretty strong play. I don't think it's quite a buy, especially at Asmodee pricing, uh, but the production quality, everything in it makes it worth what they're asking. It's just gameplay-wise and you know, the lack of discount wise in terms of picking it up, uh, it's, it's a tough one. So definitely give it a play first. If you do enjoy it, though, it's, it's definitely worth tracking down because it is a fantastic game. Yeah, the game looks beautiful. I'm still kind of unsure why they keep trying to connect this to five tribes. So other than the production and Days of Wonder, I'm not really getting it. I don't know. What's what do you feel like the weight is like for this? Uh, I think on BGG, it's a three, which is it's a little high, I think. Um, sure. Yeah, two and a half to three. It's not light. It's just very easy to learn. Okay. That there are a lot of interesting decisions to be made because you have to kind of map out in advance and you look at the map and you think, all right, well, if I put these boats down and take these culture tokens, they're going to be able to then place this boat down and take that building for those six points. So maybe I'll put this boat over here instead. Like the placement, you you almost have open placement once the game is into like the second or third round. You can put your boats almost anywhere. And it really matters where they go. You know, you can block off an entire island because you can only take an action on that island if you place a boat there on that round. So you could just surround it with something and make sure nobody can take it. There's other tokens you can pick up to block certain islands and then special abilities to unblock them. So there's a lot of strategy that kind of comes in as you start to play the game. But from round one, it's very simple. So I really like that balance where nobody's overwhelmed on the first turn they're overwhelmed on the fifth turn but by then they know the rules and they're comfortable all right so the game that i got to the table this week talking about dungeon delves is delve so anthony you like carcassonne right yeah sure and you like dungeon delves as i said absolutely all right so delve is actually put those two things together so what you're looking at here is kind of a I guess a re-implementation of Carcassonne as far as laying tiles in a certain pattern and then placing, in this case, your clan, your your fighters and such, instead of a meeple, into an area to score points. So it has a very similar mechanic to building up those cities in order to score that. And it also has a similar situation to the roads, but this one will be corridors where you're trying to like run those out and then finally cut those off. And then by doing so, you'll be able to score all the points there. So 
This is a game from Richard Lania, surprisingly enough, and has done a really great job here of implementing Carcassonne in a way that, you know, I don't think that I've expected before, and also Pete Shirley. Now, this game is by Indie Boards and Cards, and as I said, it's a dungeon crawl using Carcassonne mechanics, so you're going to expect something definitely on the lighter side here. So at the start of the game, you are going to get a race. Now, this race is going to include a number of different types of, I guess you would say, classic roles. So there's going to be a mage, and there's going to be a thief, and a leader, and a brute, and just kind of basically a total of five different types of classes as part of this race. So, for example, you could have the rates, and they have all of these different I guess very similar type of very similar type of classes with each of them comes a certain number of dice. So if you look on your little square chit, it's going to show how many dice they're going to be able to play when they do get flipped over to attack and some of those chits also have a special ability. So if they're in a special area and there's some magical symbol there, then they get additional dice. So at the start of the game, you get this race, you place a tile, you place like in this case your chit instead of your meeple. And then you take another tile, and if you completed that section, then you'll be able to score that section. Now, here's where, you know, things kind of get a little different. Now, when you're able to score that section, just a little bit like Carcassonne, if there's somebody else in that dungeon with you, now you go through a situation where you're going to be rolling off against each other. Now, as I said earlier, because your chit has the number of dice there, you now know how many dice you're going to roll and try to beat them out based upon the number of swords that are there. And then there's also plunder. So there'll be coins on the dice that show you who was going to be able to get the most or additional gold in that situation. And there are also symbols like treasure and there is symbols like a torch. That means that you have to reveal what class character you have in that little area. And there's also going to be sun symbols, which will be the round counters to kind of clock the time of the game. So the more suns that come out, the faster the game goes and reaches its end. But once all of that starts to take place, then what you're going to do is you're going to flip over the top encounter card, and it's going to give you kind of like above and below situation. If you remember that game where you get to a certain area, you flip a card over, or in the above and below, you'll be able to read a portion of the book, and it'll say, you're down in the, the dwarven mines, and you meet the dwarven princess, and she comes up to you, and she says, why are you here? Um, are you here to steal from us or are you here to help us? And then you get to make a decision. And then based upon that decision, you might succeed or fail right away. Or you might have to meet a certain condition in order to succeed. Or you might have to roll a certain number of dice. Let's say if her guards come after you to see if you can defeat them. And then if you're able to do that, then, as I said, if there's anybody else there, there's a little bit of a roll off. Whoever is able to do the most will score the most gold and treasures, and then half of those go down to the next player, once the first player has picked all the good stuff, of course. And then if there's other players in that same area, then it's a half and a half and a half. But basically, you're playing, but basically you're playing Carcassonne with a dungeon kind of crawl theme on top of it, and some of the trappings of dungeon crawling. So... There's a lot to like about this game. There's a lot to love about this game. And honestly, if I had a chance to play either Carcassonne or Delve, I'm going to play Delve just because it reminds me of the situation with Istanbul versus Yokohama, where Yokohama, even though it was a lot more loose and chaotic in some ways, it was actually a lot more fun. 
But the problem about Delve is that since it is so random, so remember, you're trying to close off an area to be able to score points. Well, I'm almost about to close off that area. Then someone adds a tile. And then someone adds another tile. And they add another tile. And now it's so big and so far from being closed off that now my my little class chits are kind of like stuck there. Well, you know, let's talk about another situation. You're going to collect gold. Well, you got a, a card that gives you three, and I got a card that gives me one. Well, that's kind of makes sense thematically, but as the game goes on, because the encounters are so, you know, random, and because the gold cards are so random, the treasure cards are so random, some of them are very powerful, and some of them are very weak, and some of the some of the starting race powers are radically more powerful than, than each other. The game has so much chance and randomness to it that you really can't play this game to win you're just going to play this game to have fun and i think the game is worthy of a play if you're looking for a game that you can kind of build up and get better as time goes on this is really not the game for you this is a game where okay that random thing kind of happened so okay that's a thing kind of like isle of sky where you're building something someone throws something else out and that just kind of changes the game so it's very tactical in that way, but sometimes the randomness and chance kind of really dilutes the game to a point where it may be more fun to play, but probably not worth a buy. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I like Carcassonne, but, you know, it gets a little same. It's an older game. So, yeah. like, this this one seemed really cool. Like, it solved that, I guess, old game boredom <laughs> that it set in, but that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah, the artwork is nice. The gameplay is is interesting. It's it's nice to have a different theme here. It's just don't expect I wouldn't say don't expect a gameplay situation so much as more of a game experience. It kind of borders on, hey, it's all going to be random. It's all going to be chance. Your powers are stronger than mine. Your card was weaker than mine. You know, you put this tile down and that's the way the game ended. So fun. So I would recommend playing it, but I don't think that you want to buy it unless this is something you absolutely positively fall in love with. So, speaking of things that we are absolutely positively falling in love with over and over again, we're going to talk about our feature review. That's our versus section, where we talk about two great things in the board gaming industry. We match them up, we pair them down, and then they fight it out to see which one in the end gains supremacy. So, this week, we are actually taking a look at two of the greatest designers in board gaming today, and that's Uwe Rosenberg versus Stefan Feld. Two solid Euro game designers who've done so much for the industry and really have set a standard that other designers, in some cases, really look up towards and really are trying to follow behind because when you talk about these two designers just in general or just amongst general gamers, they're so highly respected for the work that they do and the great games and the mastery of this great game invention that they're able to put down to the table again and again. So, Anthony, maybe we should just do some of our general thoughts about these two designers. Um, what do you think about them? Yeah, I mean, it's such a hard discussion to, to have. So it's definitely good to kind of start with, you know, what they've done uh, and kind of who they are overall. Sure. I mean, Uwe Rosenberg got his start with Bonanza of all things, sure. Daniel's favorite game. And then, like, a decade later, he's like, oh, you know what? I want to make Agricola. <laughs> so <laughs> what happened if everybody pan- planted the beans and then had to feed their family with them? <laughs> um, 
and that that kind of kicked the whole thing off because then you've got Lahav, you've got Oren Labora, you've got all creatures big and small, Glass Road, Caverna, uh, Feast for Odin, and it's all not the same game, obviously, but the same idea, the the farming idea, the building of this engine, this you know maintaining a system, and then the game forces you to maintain that system by feeding your people or paying whatever you need to pay. You know, like it's not just build a system and have a billion points it's build a system and make sure it works um and that's really something that all of his games end up having in common sure i think one of the best game moments i've ever had was playing agricola and then at some point looking down at the board and just being like i'm gonna be able to run my engine and feed my people and just being shockingly not just surprised but like happy and thrilled by that because agricola gives you such a tight experience and, it's, and I know for many people, it's a love or hate type of game, but, you know, you really do feel pressure. And that's something wonderful to experience in a board game, of all things, where here are these imaginative people on chits or, you know, pieces of cardboard, and you're trying to make sure that you have enough food to feed your people. And that's not easy. And it really kind of kind of puts you at the knife's edge often. I mean, if you want to win that game, if you want to even come close to doing even halfway decent, if you don't play it at that, you know, tightest, tightest point possible, you're not going to win. And I think a lot of Uwe Rosenberg's games really are very much true of that. Uh, Lahav, uh, of course, at the Gates of Loyang, as you mentioned, um, or Labora. You know, we, we talk about these games all the time, like we they're just normal everyday games, but they're so fantastic. They're so inventive. And as you said, there are variations on a really strong theme that he does so well. And um, especially having, as you said, a, a kind of a new twist when he came out with Feast of Odin and then bringing in more of a puzzle mechanic that he was able to use in a number of other games, including Patchwork, which I know is a, a big love for so many different people, Cottage Garden, and just bringing out those mechanics like building a great game and going hey you know what i'm gonna pull a piece of off of this and use this here and i'm gonna pull a piece off and use it here and i think when you look at most people's board game shelves you're gonna see a bunch of rosenberg games there so anthony i think we kind of covered the games there so much so let's talk about feld what do you have to say about him well feld uh i got my introduction to feld when he was in the midst of releasing seven games in two years (laughs) Um, I think the first Feld I played was Amerigo, but I don't remember after that because there were so many of them that just kind of dumped on us all at once. This is a guy who's been designing for uh, not even quite 15 years and has about that many games. And there's definitely a variance here. You've got games like you know Roma and Roma 2, which is this two-player tug-of-war and then on the other side of it, you've got Trajan, which is this, you know, heavy, heavy, thinky game. Um, but the one thing that all of his games tend to have in common is dice or randomness in some form or another that is used to dictate the kinds of actions you're going to end up taking. So you have the Castles of Burgundy, obviously, is his, his big hit. You have Trajan. Uh, you have uh, Amerigo with that cube tower. You have the Oracle Delphi. Um yeah, Bruges, they all kind of use some element of randomness to guide the players in the actions they're going to take, but also to give them uh, just a little bit of what am I going to do? How am I going to play this 
you know, what am I going to be able to do with the resources given to me and how can I mitigate the luck the best, as best as possible? And that's not something you see from a lot of Euro designers. And he's constantly thinking of new creative ways to do that because it's not the same mechanic in every game. It's just the same idea that there needs to be something in there that mixes things up. Using the dice in a Euro game is almost heresy. And yet he does it in such a way that you really do love the dice. You love the way that they give you different actions and allow you to kind of have a different game experience each time because each round that goes around, if you're playing something like Agricola, the same spots are going to be available to you. The same actions are going to be available to you. By But the way he uses the dice, like say, for example, in Bruges, that's really going to allow you to activate certain cards and build certain buildings, take a certain amount of money, and it's done so well. And as you said, with the mitigation added into it, that you never feel like the game is random or that there's just it's up to chance and you're just throwing, you know, throwing the dice and oh, we'll see what happens. It feels like it's used smartly and it's used in a way that a lot of thought goes into it. I know, for example, playing games like Bora Bora, where you get to see a game of so much color, so much flair, so much imagination and intelligence here most people when they think about euro games think of very bland beige kind of games that don't really have any fun any interaction any challenge and when you play feld's games there's so much variety and so much flavor and so much color and so much theme that goes into the game and yet they are solid crunchy games so it brings a lot of people into the hobby like you said the the big game the castles of burgundy really is a standard for everyone to own. Uh, Bora Bora is a favorite of mine, uh, not to mention, as you said, Amerigo, Bruges. Love Bruges. Bruges is a lot of fun. If you haven't played Bruges, you should play it. All the different character cards and what you can do with them. And really, it's such an outstanding catalog that you can go back to again and again. And so many of the games are very different. Oracle of Delphi. What a different game from something like you know, Macau. How did how did those two things come from the same designer? And yet they did, and they're both fantastic games. And uh, I really do enjoy so many of these different games, and I'm really glad to have them as part of the collection myself. So there are so many things we can say here about these two amazing inventors, designers, artists, geniuses. And unfortunately, we don't have all the time that to kind of like you know, laud them with all this praise, but we're coming down to it as far as time's concerned. So we just want to kind of bring it down to a final point. So as Anthony said in the question of the week, if you could only have one of these great collections here from either Uwe Rosenberg or Stefan Feld, which one would you really want to have if you can only play one of these collections? Because in the end, when it comes down to our dollars, that's typically what we do. And when you're introducing new people to the, to these games and really getting them involved, that's what you want to do. So, boiling this conversation down, Anthony, if you could only have one of these great masters of board game design, which one would you have and why? Yeah, man. I mean, it's really hard to argue Feld's um, his total body of work here. And especially with just so much new stuff coming out constantly, even though he seems to have slowed down. Like, come on. He's tired. Uh, <laughs> or maybe um, he just rolled a one so he, he can't produce a lot this round that's true that is true and the thing is like i have a, a good number of Uber games i don't like agricola which is his big game but i do have you know a lot of the other heavier games the feast for Oben was one of my favorites from last year caverna is one of my favorites period 
But I've collected all of Feld's games, with a few exceptions that are out of print, because they are all so unique. So it is hard to argue with your point that it does cover all the different levels of gamer. Um, and, you know, I would be remiss to, to not have as many solo options. Um, we do have Castles of Burgundy card game. You can play Castles of Burgundy solo as well. And a couple other have variants. So that would be remiss, but you do you do miss the middle uh, when you have Rosenberg. You either have stuff that's good with the family or you know a spouse or something, or you have stuff for the gamers. Yeah. So you don't want to drive people away, as I was driven away by Agricola. Sure. And then I refused to play any of his other games until you made me play Caverna like two years later. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dragging, kicking, and screaming, but yeah, I did not want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I might have to, I might have to give up the uh, the argument here, just because Feld has been so, so, just pleasantly surprising. And when even when you play a game that is completely out of print, it's been out forever. We played Macau back in February. Neither one of us had ever played it. It's impossible to find, and we're both like, "This is incredible!" It's incredible. Yeah. Why is this game not available? Sure. You know, and I've had my flip the table moments with Feld. Uh, yeah. In the Year of the Dragon is not fun. But you but bought it. I did buy it, so. <laughs> I think that speaks to uh, my desire to, I guess, my desire to acquire everything as if it's a disorder. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with Feld with you as well. Yeah, I just think simply because if there's a game night and what our podcast is all about is saving you a seat at the table, if it's that's the situation and we got to throw a game down, you might balk, you might run screaming from Agricola. Lahav, if there's too many of us at the table, is just really not going to work. Feast for Odin, if you don't have the time or the, the table space, is just going to scare the heck out of people. So there are definitely a lot of situations where Uwe Rosenberg games are just not going to work or that's not the game you want to throw in your game bag for game night because unless you know who you're playing with and you know the time and the physical space, Caverna, then Feld is always going to be a better choice because... No matter the player count, you're good. No matter the player, you're good. And that's there's something to be said for that. All right, so that's our feature review. Stefan Feld wins out for the Battle of the Designers. We hope that you enjoyed our quick take on these two outstanding artists, artisans, inventors. We highly recommend you play literally all of their games because they're both fantastic. But if you're going to keep one collection, it's going to be Feld. So that's everything for this week. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table with Stefan Feld and Uwe Rosenberg. <laughs>